0: I had the good fortune to meet Alexis Black as part of AEI's Summer Honors Program, an annual week long intensive that combines classroom instruction with visits to federal agency offices and other institutions in the nation's capital. Little did I expect how much she, and now her husband, Justin, would have to teach me. During the class, which was on the topic of poverty, I learned something of Alexis's remarkable story as a child who grew up in some of the most difficult family circumstances imaginable. She recently married Justin who also grew up inside the American foster care system. Against the odds, these two young people have broken old patterns and established new lives individually and as a couple. They've also written a book about their experiences, Redefining Normal, How Two Foster Kids Beat the Odds and Discovered Healing, Happiness, and Love. It was an honor to have them on Hardly Working to Tell Their Story and the lessons they think America must learn to help its most at-risk children. So, Alexis and Justin, welcome to Hardly Working.
1: Thank you so much for having us.
2: Yeah, we're just excited to be on here and talk to you.
0: Well, it's great having you. And you've written together a remarkable book that tells a story, I think, that is both heartbreaking and inspirational at the same time. And you've got a lot in there. You've lived a lot of life in a very short period of time. And you've got a lot that you can share with the world about what that means and a lot of insights, I think, that would be helpful, not just to policymakers, though I do think there's a lot in here that's good for policy, for people working in policy to think about, but also for the public that I think has a hard time, many of us have a hard time sort of imagining what it's like to grow up in difficult circumstances and what's required then to overcome those circumstances. Sometimes it gets very simplified. Just try harder, I think, sometimes is the message. And I think that's one of the things that you're in your book that comes through really clearly is that, yes, effort is required, but a lot of other things are too. So so before we get into the content of the book, I just wanted to have each of you take a few minutes and tell your story, the story of your life in three minutes, which is really unfair. But... (laughs) But I think that that context, some context is really important before we get into the specifics of the book. So let's have Alexis go first.
1: Okay. Yes. A little bit about me. I'm Alexis Black. Now Alexis Black. I was Alexis Linderman. We recently got married. But I would say my story really starts when I was about five or six years old. My biological mother actually committed suicide. And after that, I went to go live with my biological father. Who around the time that I moved in with him, when I was about five or six, that's when the abuse really started with him. And it was sexual, emotional, and physical abuse up until I was about 13. After that, I was taken away from his house and put into foster care. But I was placed with my aunt and uncle. And that was actually not a very good placement, just because there was a lot of emotional and mental abuse that happened during the time that I lived there. But also, outside of that, because I was taught that love hurts, and that love is transactional. I was taught that by my biological father and all these other deep-rooted issues. It was in an abusive relationship for about eight years. So from 13 to 22, I was in an abusive relationship. And so it was a lot of compound trauma during that time. And when I lived with my aunt and uncle, as I mentioned, it was pretty emotionally and mentally abusive. And there was a lot of threatening to kick me out, threatening to put me in another foster home, things like that. And I was at my 10th school already, For high school, and so I didn't want to kind of push the boundaries and and get kicked out or get put into another home because I would have to switch schools. But ultimately, I did end up getting kicked out, and my aunt packed up all my stuff and put it in the driveway, and that was my junior year of high school. And at the time, you know, that was an extremely terrifying moment, but it ended up being the greatest moment of my life (laughs) because I met the greatest foster parents on the planet, who are now my adoptive parents. And I was actually adopted in December at 26 as an adult, which is pretty uncommon, but. It's part of my story. After that, I lived with them for a bit, but then they ended up leaving to go to take a job on the other side of the state. And I met their parents and I moved in with them. So I was able to stay in the same high school. And so that was a way for me to not have to transfer schools. After this time, I started college, started at the University of Michigan, Flint, and it wasn't a good fit for me. So then I transferred to Western Michigan University, where I graduated last spring. With a BBA in Entrepreneurship, a BA in Global Studies, minors in nonprofit Leadership in Political Science, I set my school's record for the number of study abroad programs. So college was really my way of discovering the world and really figuring out what my purpose and passions are. And that's also where I met Justin on the first day of our scholarship program, the Cedar Scholars Program at Western Michigan University. We met in a foster care support program in higher education. That's a bit about me. <laughs> okay,
0: very good. This is a theme I think that comes up in both of your stories. You talked about love being transactional, and I want to come back to mm-hmm. that. But Justin, first, let's let's hear about your about your life.
2: Yeah, so I'm from Detroit, and I grew up in Detroit since age uh, 17, roughly. And I started my journey. Well, my journey of first care started at nine years old when my family. My mom, specifically, and my dad dealt with a lot of substance abuse issues. My dad involved with selling drugs and doing drugs and stuff like that. So the kind of the influence of my family and community was kind of bringing down me personally and also the members of my family as well. And a lot of times in the book, I focus mainly on the mental health and stability of my family and how that shaped the culture of our family and each of us individually moving forward. So that circumstance with my family and my parents' situation kind of influenced our living situation. We lived in poverty for quite some time and experienced homelessness. From there, actually, CPS discovered our situation. They learned more about the things we were going through as a family and how we were living on a day-to-day basis. And from there, we were actually on the run from Child Protective Services, going from being on the run, we actually entered into an abandoned house, where me, my two other brothers, fourteen at the time, and eleven, I believe, yeah, eleven and fourteen, my sister who was eighteen, I was about eight or nine at the time. My sister was pregnant. My fourteen-year-old brother had a baby on the way, and we lived in the in the abandoned house in Michigan during the winter, where. My mom didn't have a job and still dealt with substance abuse issues. My dad was around, but not around. Regardless, he he dealt with some of the same issues. And we kind of just had to go through this experience and, of being homeless pretty much and on the run from term protected services. And it got to a point, as you can imagine, where living in a abandoned house during the winter in Michigan can be pretty tough. So we a lot of us ended up getting sick. Stomach viruses, different viruses, and my mom had no choice but to release us into the foster care system where we live with family temporarily, but me and my brother that was two years older than me, I'm the youngest of five actually, we moved around the system together and just kind of found our way and just relied on each other the whole way through and skipping forward a little bit, but dealing with the insecurities of not having parents around and even harder having parents who were involved but who were in close in proximity but not as much as far as being involved in my life as i grew up in detroit not too far away from my parents the whole time dealing with that and the massive struggle and emotional struggle of that throughout my teenage and adult years and though accomplished as a college student needed to figure out my ways as an adult and how to feel more secure about myself now that I've realized that I don't have the support from family that I need and how to build that family community for myself.
0: I want to go back. I want to go back in your lives, and I want you to think about the intergenerational side of this. When you think about your families of origin, and you think about the conditions, that your parents came up in Do you see a continuity there do you see a continuation of their experience into your experience at least early not not right now, but I mean in other words, how do you think about the problem based on your experience? how do you think about the problem of intergenerational poverty?
2: Yeah I guess I can start on this one. So poverty is generational but there are multiple different reasons why. People and families suffer in poverty. Sometimes it's mental health issues. Sometimes it's drug addiction, which drug addiction is a, in my opinion, a form of a mental health issue being expressed in a wrong way. So there are many reasons why people suffer in poverty, but for specific reasons, poverty can be generational. Like there is two generations of drug addiction on my mom's side, maybe more, I don't even know. But just from what I know, there's two generations and this addiction has led us to live in poverty and accept poverty. And for specifically a lot of black communities, we accept inferiority. So a lot of us have been in poverty for generations beyond what we can imagine or what we can think about. So this idea of poverty is almost accepted, is required. And culturally, you know, we discuss how even if we do try to get out of poverty, you know, it's frowned upon by others. Me traveling to 30 different countries, accomplishing what I accomplished in college, internships to Washington, D.C., it's either frowned upon or ignored. And success is, like, just strange to look at, you know. It becomes the normal, and that's why we have a book called Redefining Norm, because poverty, and even on my dad's side with two to three generations of domestic violence, a lot of these ideas of drug abuse, of neglect, poverty, domestic violence, other forms of violence, a lot of these become normal and acceptable to where it becomes culture. And when it becomes culture, it's passed down from generation to generation. And our ideas and definitions of love are perverted and, and changed and, and corrupted. And our idea of identity, who we are, what we think of ourselves are, are corrupted and, and changed and how we express ourselves, we express ourselves out of that abuse, neglect, and violence, and then it becomes culture and it's passed down easily from generation to generation. And that is how it's passed down. When it's all you see and it's all you surround with, it becomes the normal. So it's, that's what it is.
1: Mm-hmm. And in my family, like, at least what I know from doing my own research, I've seen like on my mother's side, my mom and my grandma both committed suicide. And so, Knowing that that's something that could potentially be passed down to me. Even if I don't know the patterns of my family and know what's going on, then I'm more predisposed to those things. And then also, what I've learned from the ACEs assessment, which is adverse child experiences, which we talked about actually in our AEI summer honors program, what you're predisposed to depending on the different traumas that you've gone through. And because we've both taken the, a- the ACEs assessment, and 10 is the highest score, and that's what I scored. And then Justin scored a nine. And so, knowing that we both, are predisposed to these all these different things, we have to be super vigilant on what we allow ourselves to be exposed to, what we really think about every day, what our actions, things like that. And then on my dad's side, I know that violence definitely falls on that side of the family. And say, even with my grandpa, which is my dad's dad, I know that he abandoned the family and and left. And I see that within my biological father. He didn't want anything to do with me until I was two years old. And then once he finally did decide that he wanted something to do with me, he fought my biological mother tooth and nail to get me and fought her through court. And it was really just more of a way of having power over her than anything else. And I see that actually with my brother and the way that he fights his child's mother in court over the child literally has nothing to do with the child. It just has to do with having power over that person. It's it's another form of domestic violence. And just seeing that and then knowing that looking at court documents that my mother actually committed suicide right after the court ruled that my dad had rights over. And so just seeing these different patterns in my family, and that's why we go to counseling. That's why we do so much research on our family history. So we can make sure that we're being vigilant and intentional on our lives so that we're not making those same generational patterns.
0: You know, it's so interesting to hear you talk about how careful you are in your lives to protect your relationship, to protect your well-being, mental, physical, social well-being, spiritual well-being. It almost sounds like, I just want to bounce this off of you and see what you think. It almost sounds to me like people who are in recovery. Do you feel like you're in recovery?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's actually interesting that you say that because we have a friend who created an organization and it's focused on foster care recovery. And because even though you've gone through foster care, maybe you aged out, maybe you figured out how to be successful, you're always healing. You're always trying to kind of unlearn and relearn those habits, those things that you've uncovered. And how do you recover from that? And it's really a lifelong journey of healing and recovery. So I love that you actually use that term because that's what we use with our friend.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's very reminiscent for anybody who's ever had a family member go through drug or alcohol rehabilitation, that all the vocabulary is very much the same. And the idea of relapse is there, that it's not impossible for people to take a dive and wind up back in these patterns of poverty.
1: Absolutely. And Justin, he's too humble to say this, but he is the first person in his family to go to college, to travel out of the country, to get married, to do everything, basically. And we're in the process of buying a house right now. So he's the first one in his family to purchase a home. I mean, in all these different things, he's the first one. And the amount of burden, it's an incredible burden that he carries to really break those generational patterns and cycles and how even his family you know, looks down on those things because he's breaking those patterns. And it's in, it's outside of the lens that they see every day. And so trying to relate to that or even talk about that. And I remember that during the summer honors program on poverty and welfare, we talked about that a lot of how difficult it is for individuals to break out of those out of poverty and that poverty mindset and to try to push an entire family and the next generation forward when you don't have the support of your family now.
0: Yeah, it raises an interesting point about the problem of Negative attachment, you know, and I see that in your, in both of your stories that human beings just aren't cut out to be on their own. And so if the only things you have around you are negative, you will attach to those things for the sake of having something, you know, in mm-hmm. your life. So talk, talk a little bit about that. Cause I saw it in both of your stories. You're looking for stability, you're looking for, you know, to be meaningful in the eyes of others? And then what happens?
2: Yeah, so basically, we're just yearning for community. For a lot of teenagers and young children, they're looking for acceptance. And everybody's looking to be a part of something. So when, no matter what you're around or surrounded by, if it's positive or negative, it's good or bad, it's healthy and unhealthy, they're looking for acceptance. So you're trying to adapt to... The culture and the things around you. How did that work in your life? Yeah. So, me specifically, with a lot of times in our family and our community, for me, trauma or, or something going, something crazy going on or, or some form of drama going on around us was the only way for us to get attention. And, you know, whether it's good or bad, it was attention. So, getting into fights getting into trouble in so many different ways and forms is the only way for me to get attention, especially as the youngest in the house. So for me, I had to kind of always try to outdo people, you know, when we get into fights or try to start, you know, start trouble for myself just to get attention from, from family and from people. And, And I noticed that even as an adult, when I came home, I remember a lot of times I understood that I was trying to, have these accomplishments, whether I interned in DC or traveled abroad or get good grades, I was looking to do this for acceptance and acknowledgement from my family. And a lot of times it just went over their head, maybe because they simply just didn't understand because you know they haven't experienced any of these things. So they just didn't understand that way. But I remember in my younger days, you know, when I started up trouble and I got suspended from school. I got into a fight in the school, I said something crazy off the wall to a teacher in school or another woman in school, you know, that's when I got the most attention from home. And it's just, you don't have to say it, but, you know, that's a form of attention or even praise, you know, when a lot of times we we don't celebrate marriage or commitment and long-term relationships or just help health, the healthy aspects of life. You know, that was common for, for me and my family. And it was praised upon the, the negativity a lot of times. So when you, when you, you get praised and worship for negative things, you kind of follow into that path because we are looking for acknowledgement, acceptance, and so many other things. And when we're praised and we're acknowledged or we're seen for some of the negative, you know, we follow that path. But it took a switch for me. And you know, I think a change in community, change in scenery. Even though I went through my struggles in the foster care system and the foster care system can be scary. It could be horrible for a lot of people. And at moments, it was for me. But overall, I feel like it saved me and it helped a lot. And I was able to see more positive black men and women in my life who were doing great things and successful and giving me praise and attention for the positivity that I was doing and encouraging me to do more positive in my life. So it took that change in culture and people and surroundings for me. Alexis, what are your thoughts on that question of what a child has
0: to do in such circumstances as you grew up in to get attention?
1: Absolutely. For me, as common as it is for a lot of young women who who go through sexual abuse or sexual violence, a lot of times it can come out in, in that sort of fashion where we're seeking attention in the wrong way. And a lot of times it can be through partners or men or whatever it may be. And for me, it was in that same fashion of reaching out to guys around me, trying to get attention, trying to always have somebody hug me, touch me in any way possible. Because for me, that love came through physical touch, because that's what I learned through my biological father. And I saw that transition when I entered into that abusive relationship for eight years, even though I didn't really understand that it was abusive until I met my foster now adoptive parents when I was actually almost in college. That's when I learned that the relationship that I was in was actually unhealthy. I didn't realize that I thought that this was normal. Like I remember coming home and asking my foster dad, you know, do you ever call Kim my foster mom the B word? Cuz I'm called that every day. And is that normal? (laughs) Because I don't I didn't know. I, you know, when you're not surrounded by healthy examples and healthy understanding of what even a relationship should look like, you accept anything. And especially if it's somebody that tells you that they love you, because you need that, you need that love, you need some sort of community and as Justin mentioned, and that and that commitment, whether it's healthy or unhealthy. So for me, it came out so much into that abusive relationship of constantly going back and constantly trying to seek validation from that partner. And my worthiness, because if I don't understand what my value and my identity is, then I'm willing to accept those things. And I saw that in myself, even though I lived now with my foster parents and I saw their relationship, which was very healthy. I didn't believe that I was worthy of that. I really believe that they did something. God must have loved them a little extra or given them a little extra grace. I didn't deserve that. And so that's why it took an extra three or four years, even after I met my foster parents to leave that relationship just because I had such ingrained and deep-rooted issues around what it is to be worthy and to create my own community and support system.
0: Amazing. So I think we talked about this during the honors program, but there's there's an idea in social science in terms of trying to communicate to low-income, impoverished, dysfunctional Individuals and families, that there's this idea called the success sequence. Does that sound familiar to you, Alexis or Justin?
1: Trying to remember. Can you go a little more (laughs) in depth on that one? Sure,
0: sure. No problem. So, the success sequence is this argument basically that if people do three things in life, graduate from high school, get a full time job, and don't have kids until you get married. If you do those three things, your chances of being poor in America are extremely low. If you've got Mm. that foundation underneath you, there's something about those things which are kind of protective of people to, you know, finish high school, get a full-time job, and then don't have any kids until after you get married. I want you to try, both of you, to try to think back to your adolescence, Late middle school and into high school. If somebody had come to you, say there had been a class or something at school or some other community organization where they had that kind of educational opportunity to say, All right, it's really important that you do these three things. How would you have responded to that kind of a message, do you think?
1: I'm not sure how receptive I would have been, just because I feel like I was in complete survivor mode until I graduated high school. And I had my high school counselor constantly say to me, Alexis, I just want you to graduate. Let's just get you to graduation. Just because I I was struggling so much day to day. Like I was at the point where I was eating lunch with counselors and my teachers almost every day because I was struggling. And I didn't feel that I had friends that I could trust. I didn't feel that I had a community around me. And so it was to the point where I just felt like I just needed to graduate high school. But at the same time, my... Godfather always planted the seed that I needed to go to college and how important that was, even though my biological father kept telling me how wasted time it was, how I shouldn't go, and how he really tried to plant that seed of not going and just working. But then seeing how my godfather was constantly trying to push me towards an education, but then also the fact that, given the fact that we are both former foster youth, there are a lot of resources for foster youth in college. And so for me, I I figured that, you know what, I love school and i love learning and that's the one thing that nobody can take away from me and there's scholarships available which means i'm going to have money to live <laughs> and to pay for my rent pay for my housing you know to do the thing that i love so for me it was more it was more about that and trying to think you know how am i going to survive outside of high school once i do graduate and what are the next steps so i don't know how receptive i would have been as a child of those things just because of that survival mode, and then having, you know, my immediate surroundings of individuals telling me that it was really a waste of time, because nobody around me had that college degree or or did those things. There were so many broken homes of, you know, you go to your dad's house on the weekends, or once a month, or whatever it may be, or you have multiple child's mothers or fathers or whatever it is, that there's no set system of what a healthy foundation of a family looks like where you have, you know, your mother and father and you're living in the same home and you're not having visitation rights or fighting in court and all these things that completely the norm. So I don't know. I don't know if I would have been receptive. What about you?
2: I think I would have been receptive, but I just don't know how true or how impactful it is, especially when you think about the full-time job component of things is you can work, hours on end at multiple different just restaurants you know i think it takes more than that it takes the want to get out of poverty or not to just get out of poverty because it's, there are communities of people and entire pretty much races of people who are suffering in poverty it's more of the idea of having a vision to want to change that for your group for your community for your for your racial group for your family you know a full-time job and and those things help you know not having a child before 18, before you graduate high school, before you're married, you know, those things help and not getting a full-time job, but well, who are we working for? Are we working for, are we making money for someone outside of our community, outside of our race? Is this full-time job actually teaching us skills and abilities that will help us and that will help us become more independent or maybe start a business, start something in our community that would change the future for our community you know it's not just as simple as a full-time job because there are a lot of people in poverty who are working and I think that's a misconception that a lot of times that people in poverty just don't have jobs or aren't working there are a lot of people who are working even if they're doing some type of construction or doing some type of something that's under the table there are a lot of people who are working at at restaurants or, or fast food joints and other things but The problem is the rat race where we are not working towards wealth. We're working just to get another check or another check for this week and holding on. And a lot of people in poverty are holding on by threads where if they get an injury or a car breaks down or something, an emergency situation happens, they get even deeper into poverty. And this cycle of, you know, just chasing a check is exhausting, but you're used to just living just the earn money for food and to pay bills and that's it i think the bigger thing that people need to focus on if you want to decrease the number of communities and people in poverty is to try to work towards wealth and understand and and focus on the importance of ownership of starting businesses and even though a lot of businesses fail doing research on businesses and what's needed in the community and creating those entities and those staples in the community and focusing on that because Full-time job and earning a, a check will do nothing, especially if that full-time job, if the employer isn't willing to teach you skills and attributes that will help you become independent and eventually get on your own. I think it's a good idea, and I'm happy that people are focusing on trying, trying to help people get out of poverty. But I, I think I don't think it's that simple. I think it's a little bit more complex.
0: So let me let me press into this just a little bit, and then we'll move on. So what I'm, I'm asking you to do with this question is to imagine yourself back then, and imagine that you're 10, 11, 12, maybe, you know, into high school, and somebody comes to you, you got a special assembly at school or something, and everybody goes in, and there's somebody up there talking about this thing called the success sequence. Your answer, Justin, was really good because it, it's a great perspective looking looking at it as an adult, but I'm, I'm curious as to if you can sort of, in your mind, go back to the way that you thought then, what was going on around you then, and somebody comes in and says, look, you just need to finish high school, get a job, and don't have any kids until you're married. What would that have meant? That's
2: the question I'm going, what would it have meant to you then? Yeah, I don't I don't think... I mean, it would have been, I'm like, oh, okay, then I guess being successful is not as hard as I thought because I, I don't know. I just, I didn't think that those three things are is that difficult. And even as a nine or 10 year old or, you know, being that young, I didn't think that those things are that difficult, you know, even though it w- it was somewhat common around me a lot of times, for me, I always... I kind of followed into the path of my community a lot of times, but I mean, I always had great aspirations. I'm always thinking Mm. entrepreneurial. I didn't want to have kids too young because I knew I couldn't afford kids. I seen my parents struggle and all the things that we went through and I, I kind of made a decision pretty young. that I didn't want to have kids, you know, prematurely. And put myself in a hole where they have to suffer because I don't have the money to feed them and, and everything. And my only concern would be is getting a full-time job is because, I mean, yeah. and, and again, this is what I would be thinking as a young person at saying that, okay, are you guaranteeing a full-time job? Is this person that is coming to say this, is offering a full-time job? And that would be my only concern. No, they're just telling you. They're you. just scared of like, yeah. okay, how do, how do I...
0: Yeah, they're they're just telling you that it's yeah, a good I mean, I idea and that know. if you I mean, do I these.
2: I would, I would think that it would be a lot easier.
0: <laughs> okay, so I want to explore something Alexis talked about in her last answer when she was talking in her last answer about this godfather or godparent in her life. Who was that, and how did he make his way into your life, and then why did he have so much influence?
1: Yeah, his name was I call him Uncle Giles. He was. The first role model that I had of what a man looked like and what a healthy relationship looked like with him and his wife, my Aunt Bev, I would say that he came into my life probably when I was around eight or seven or eight. It was my grandma's best friend. Even though my grandma, she was blind and she just did not like me being around because I was always coloring or doing something that in her mind was very loud and she just didn't want to be around kids. And so my godparents took me a lot of times. And then when my biological father, when he would go off to like truck driving school or these different programs or whatever, I would stay for a few summers or things with my godparents and they were older. They were, I would say, late 60s, early 70s when I lived with them. So it was more of grandparents and they would always just try to instill different practices and ideologies in me. And and a lot of those were based around education because he was a professor at a university in Flint. And they lived right outside of Flint in Grand Blanc. And so he he would spend so many days during the summer just creating math problems for me, having me look up things in the dictionary. Or if I would ask like, where is this at in the world? He would take me over to his globe on his desk and show me. So it was just this exposure to ideas and thoughts of things that I didn't have at home. And he just wanted me to think bigger because he knew that my dad, when I was at home with him, he was trying to minimize and limit my mindset and things that I could do and accomplish in life.
0: Fantastic. What about you, Justin? Did you have somebody like that in your life?
2: I think at a certain point, I had an individual really, or a bunch of individuals just investing in my life, especially around 16, 17. I think the the circle around me, the people who were in my life, they, it became less extreme as far as toxic and, and unhealthy. You know, when I lived with my parents in that environment, and from a lot of my biological family, it, uh, it it was really not the best. But the further I got away, the more mentors I had. The more I had successful black men and women around me. At seventeen, when I moved right outside the city, and I lived in a group home, I, that's when I started to have more mentors and surrounded by people in a church and just a, a bunch of amazing people who spoke life and goodness into me and had a good expectations of me. And even though I, I knew I wanted to do great, great things, I had an idea of going to college. And the idea of my community in the city of Detroit, I didn't have the resources, the confidence, and which is the main thing. I didn't believe in myself to do that. Like I always wanted to go to college. Even since middle school, I wanted to go to college, but I didn't have the confidence to do it. So I somewhat gave up on it in high school, especially when my grades weren't looking the best. But I had mentors. Just a bunch of mentors that I still have to this day, just coming around me and just telling me how great, how great I'll be, and how I can execute going to college and be in a position to do great things if I do A, B, and C. And I started to do that and follow that and start to work hard for them and not even for myself, just because I wanted to make them happy and somewhat make them proud. And I did want to get to college and. And I wanted to follow, you know, if they told me this is all I have to do to get to college. And it's up to me and I have the power to do that. And they'll work and advocate on my behalf to do so, then I wanted to hold my my end of the bargain. So I think mentors, especially in my late teenage years, really got me over the hump to be where I am today. Is there
0: anybody in particular that you think back on who was like said something to you that was especially meaningful
2: or had a big impact? And what did they say? It, it's hard to say one person, but what's important is there was just a lot of people, especially for foster youth. When you, for foster youth, when you have just one person or two people who are saying something good to you you, know, you, you think it's just something temporary, you don't think it's a long-term thing, and you don't believe them. But I had the house parents And the group home that I lived in, even though we don't have the best relationship today, they they spoke positivity into me and great things into me. I had, I mean, just people from church and mentors around me that I still have to this day. So many mentors I can name off, but I would say, you know, they they told me that they just complimented me in so many different areas. Whether I I I had a seed in me of something good I can do, whether I'm a good I'm writing and I love journalism while well, I was in high school and I was a sports editor for our school paper. And that's something I love to do and I was passionate about doing. And they told me like, hey, you know, I see you going to college and doing journalism and, and doing communications and providing me the resources and, and scholarships. Like, hey, here's the scholarship to apply for college. Hey, here are the steps to apply for college. I'm, I need you to join this program and encouraging me to go in different directions. And I would say really providing the resources because I can have the ideas and I can want to do that, but they really provided me the resources. And I think it wasn't just a word or a sentence that was said to me, but it was really just providing me the resources to do so and letting me know that, okay, if it's solely up to how hard I work for this, and if I know in my heart that I work hard for it and I can accomplish it, then I will be willing to do it. But sometimes for a lot of people in foster care, a lot of Black men and women, it makes me like no matter how hard I work, it's, it's circumstances beyond my power. But with people surrounding me and giving me resources to do great things, that was the key thing for me. and let me know, okay, it's up to me. And me getting to college and me doing great things is solely dependent on how hard I work or how bad I want it. You know, that really encouraged me to get up and do things myself and take advantage of those resources that they provided. I think just continue to provide resources and opportunities and it takes mentors and other people seeing something in you, seeing that seed and watering that seed in you and providing specific Mm -hmm. opportunities for you to do things that is really helpful. That's true.
1: That reminds me a lot of the book, The Alternative. That's actually one of my favorite books that I've been able to read. And I share that book with a lot of people. And that what he just said reminds me of that, of making sure that you're empowering individuals in the community and they already have the purpose and things within them. It's just helping them to reveal what that is and giving them the resources to move forward. We don't necessarily want people to do things for us. We want to figure it out ourselves. And that reminds me of, of that book.
0: That's interesting. And it's kind of where I wanted to go as we wrap up here. Kids in foster care they have been subject to a whole lot of effort to try to help their natural families, the foster care system, all sorts of, you know, interventions that are intended to try to improve kind of the trajectory, the outcomes of the lives of kids who are really struggling. In general, not all that successful at preventing that intergenerational phenomenon from continuing. And I'm curious, just like from your standpoint, if you were advising a member of Congress or a mayor or somebody working in the CPS or some other institution, that a helping institution that's there to, you know, it's public or private, doesn't matter. But if, if you were advising them on what kinds of changes need to be made so that more kids wind up on your trajectory and fewer on the trajectory of most of the kids who come through the foster care system, or many of the kids who come through the foster care system. I don't want to paint with too broad a brush there, but what would you advise them? What needs to be done differently?
1: I see a lot of the issues being that the resources that are provided for foster youth are reactive and not proactive. Once youth are already taken away from their home, which a lot of times, the number, well, actually the number one reason why foster youth are taken away from their home is neglect. And oftentimes neglect is a symptom of poverty. And so these youth are being taken away from their family, which is traumatic in itself, and then trying to give services after that versus trying to support families while they have the youth and coming in and, and with intervention services, maybe it can just be providing a different way of thinking. Like for what we talk about in the book, which you've read is so much of who we are today is just based on a change of environment or a change of mindset based on a new set of information that we were given. Or when, when we don't have that information, when we're only facing our lives and the foundation of who we are, our identity, how we raise our children all these things based on generational patterns and not questioning what that is or not given an example of a way to do it differently. And when you don't have those examples or have that knowledge, how do you know to be better if you don't see better or you're not given that information? So there's, to me, there's no resources around being proactive and keeping youth with their families and giving them the resources that they need at a young age versus trying to give it to them once they've already been taken and that trauma has already been set. And so that's, that's an issue that I've noticed within my own experiences. There has been several studies happened within Australia that I have a friend who's been working on of trying to support youth and families while they're still in the home versus taking them away. And how do we bring that to the U.S. and not trying to support them at such a late time, especially youth who are transitioning out of foster care? And you may be aware from the book of how many youth are homeless or incarcerated after they leave foster care. I think the statistic was like 80% of people that are in prison have a history of being in the foster care system. And so that is proven that there is a foster care to prison pipeline. And how do we be proactive around that? And there just isn't enough measures working in in the other way to make sure that youth are staying with their home, making it a positive, healthy environment. And then if they end up going to foster care, how to have them have a healthy transition out versus when you're 18 or 21, like, bye, have a great life, you know, try to get a job, try to be stable and figure out next steps. (laughs) That doesn't work. Even with us, with the great support systems, we really struggled when we aged out and just not seeing those resources for other youth has been really difficult, especially during COVID. I've seen it. Everything exacerbated.
2: Yeah, I agree. (laughs) Justin, you have anything you want to add to that? No, I think she said a lot. (laughs) I think Alexis is on point, and I kind of just, I agree with everything she said. And for policymakers and people who have influence and advocates to look to provide policies and resources that would not just keep foster youth and people in the system just stringing along and running a rat race and stuck in poverty, but Try to give them, I would say normal life, but try to give them the resources that will be provided to somewhat of a middle class kid. Of, okay, OK, there are resources there are starting to be more resources for funding funds in college so, and focus on, you know, wealth and how far you can not just simply get an apartment or simply rent a house. But how can you own a house? More policies and resources towards that. How can there be funding for your business, you know, and how how can we just get more ownership and autonomy over our lives? Because there's been so many systems and people who have had control of our lives. How can we, you know, not just get to obtain ownership and wealth and autonomy and, and some things that a lot of our students don't even think about. Think ahead in that way and create policies that position us to do those things.
1: What that reminds me of, again, is back to that book the alternative and how coming around individuals and creating community and supporting them in their initiatives, supporting them and figuring out their own problems. Like for me, one of the most empowering things that ever has happened for me is when I moved in with my foster parents and they would ask me, what is it that I want? What do I want for dinner? What do I want to do this weekend? You know, what, what do I think about solving this issue? Or when I come to them with a question and they say, well, what do you think? and really challenging me and my perception and trying to get me to think for myself. And that's incredibly difficult for foster youth when you never feel like you make your own decisions, when you feel like your foster parents or social workers are constantly making decisions for you, then you don't understand the impact of those decisions and as well as the consequences. And for me, that really taught me how to be independent and how to figure things out on my own and to work through them. And no matter what decision I do make, because ultimately it it is up to me, the consequences are of my own as well. And so that's something that I learned. It wasn't until I was about 17 or 18 when I lived with my foster parents in that six months to a year time that I lived with them that they taught me that invaluable lesson that really got me to where I am today in so many ways, building, as you mentioned, like that ownership, those success principles, taking ownership over my life and my decisions.
0: I think that's so fascinating. And it comes up a lot in the work that I do, research that I do on criminal justice reform and re-entry, which is when you take people, like I said earlier, you know, the foster care to prison pipeline is a very real thing. And part of the reality of that is that there's so many interventions going on to try to prevent the negative outcome. There's so many mm-hmm. interventions going on. And basically, we end up training people how not to make decisions and how to mm-hmm. look to others to make, to make decisions for us rather than sort of building their personal agency, their capacity Absolutely. for decision-making, but also just the idea that, you know, you're the primary owner of your own life and that ultimately it will be up to you. And mm-hmm. you have to get used to that idea of choosing and deciding. and And I want to hastened out, I'm not blaming people for not having that capacity or lacking enough of that capacity because I think it is a learned behavior and learned a set of expectations that has to be unlearned and something else has to be put in its place. And mm-hmm. that's what really strikes me about your story is that you just... The story you just told is that doesn't happen overnight. That's not a light switch that you flip. It's something, it's sort of a gradual realization that takes time for people, especially when they've been in a situation where they've really been deprived of agency, of the ability to choose both explicitly through policy, but you know, policies and caseworkers and things like that, but also in your family situations where you didn't have a lot of choice there or a lot of capacity for decision making there either. So, well, I want to congratulate both of you on this project. It's really a remarkable achievement. And you need to like soak that in. This is not something that people of your age are typically able to achieve, you know, putting together a book, really thinking hard about your past, where you're trying to get to. And so I just, again, I just really want to congratulate you for the courage that you have and that you've shown in putting this book together. So, for our audience, the title of the book is Redefining Normal, how Two Foster Kids Beat the Odds and Rediscovered Healing, Happiness, and Love. And that's available on Amazon, both in Kindle and hard copy version. Where else can people find you and follow your lives and what you're doing?
1: Yeah, so we we do have a website for our book. It's re-definingnormal.com. And we are doing actually 50% off autographed copies for your listeners. So with coupon code 50OFFRN. So if anybody's interested in that. If you're interested in learning more about us, we're on LinkedIn. We constantly are giving updates about our successes and what we're doing and the change that we're trying to create in the world. We do have two other companies and all three of them are mission-oriented and impact-oriented in supporting the community around us.
2: Yeah, You can also contact us at info at read-findingnormal.com and please visit the website for more information on the book. Again, the book is structured where we have statistics in the book before each chapter. And we have all those statistics cited on our website. So it kind of gives you a good gist or idea what you're getting ready to learn or the information you're getting ready to receive. And you can just learn more about us on our website and our story, just a quick glimpse. That's great. And are you on Twitter? Can people follow you on Twitter?
1: We aren't on Twitter. We're on Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram. <laughs>
0: okay. So Justin and Alexis Black. Redefining Normal, thank you so much for your time and for being with us on Hardly Working. And we look forward to following your journey and seeing what the next chapter holds.
1: Yes, thank you
2: so much for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us on. We truly appreciate it.
0: Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.